Well, we're continuing our study in Titus, and we'll be turning to the text immediately. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're just so thankful that you give us any day for the study of your word and for the worship that you allow us to be drawn to and to present to you. Father, we thank you in particular for this day which you have made for us. May we be good stewards of this day, and may that be particularly true in these hours in the morning when we are gathered together for your worship. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, last week we looked at the introductory verses to Titus in chapter 1. And we saw how this particular introduction differs from other Pauline uh, introductions to the epistles or the letters. And we saw in particular the focus upon the recipient who is Titus. And we saw some of the characteristic themes of the introductions that Paul writes to his epistles. But we also noted that to Titus, he was speaking with great intimacy such that when we speak of the pastoral epistles, the two letters to Timothy and Titus, we really need to speak of Timothy and Titus as two of Paul's sons in the ministry. That becomes very crucial as this plays out because the role of Titus in this context as the, as the Greek or the Gentile of his sons, uncircumcised, that turns out to be a matter of material difference. Paul has intentionally left Titus on this missionary journey and now writes to him because Titus is providentially prepared to offer leadership here, apostolic, deputized leadership, where it is needed. We saw that as the first part of the introduction came to an end, in verse 4, he writes to Titus, My true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now before we go any further, we would note that in the structure of Paul's most common uh, epistle form, what would follow now would be a thanksgiving. Like when you think of Paul's famous thanksgiving statement to the Philippians. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you to the church in Philippi. And uh, if you take the two Timothy epistles, he includes the similar kind of thanksgiving statement. He's thankful for Timothy uh, in 2 Timothy, not so much in 1 Timothy. And uh, in 1 Timothy and in Titus, here's what we see. Paul's got an urgency and he already has an established relationship. This isn't just with the church of people who might have greater and lesser knowledge of Paul. This is to someone who is like a son. And just like a father speaking to a son, sometimes you have time to speak of all the, the uh, expressions of gratitude and, and affection. Uh, the affection's here. The gratitude's going to have to wait. Titus has a job to do. Paul is writing out of urgency. And he gets right to it. So there is no Thanksgiving passage like we might expect as would be typical in Paul's writing. So what that connotes to is not a lack of Thanksgiving, but the presence of urgency. And that becomes very clear. And so this is one of the interesting things about Paul's letters. Um, and, and, and it could be in our own experience that we have letters like this. I'm, I'm sure you've received 
one or two in your lifetime. Um, just in the role I serve, I've received more than, more than my share. It's where people have a purpose to write. They have an urgency to write. As the old expression would put, they have a bee in their bonnet. But they still have to be nice for a few lines until they get to that. And so even now they'll write a line saying, I so appreciate you know, your contribution to this, your leadership here, what you're doing there. What in the world are you doing over here? And it's just, it's, it, you, you know that's why they wrote the letter. But you, you, you can't, well, that's one of the differences with email, right? Email, there is no apostolary form. Everybody just drops the niceties. It's just, you know, dearblank.com, are you out of your mind? It's a different kind of writing. And it also reminds us of something else. At any given era, we are, as a part of the larger context, a part of a communications culture in which this makes sense and something else would not make sense. And uh, you know, one of my favorite places to see this is if you take, for instance, books by uh, John Calvin or uh, Martin Luther, anyone in that era, but John Calvin's got the best. Uh, when John Calvin writes a dedicatory letter to the monarch, uh, generally Henry in France, it's a doozy of a statement. Uh, it just shows you the diplomatic ability of, of John Calvin. And uh, it, it just, you look at that and you recognize, you know, you write a book these days, you don't worry about it the way he had to worry about it. Back then, if the king didn't like the book, he could have had the book censured. So anyway, you, you, you write a greeting to the king. And uh, the, those days, if you wanted your book to have any prominence, you had to do that. And, and, and lower the risk of it being censored or suppressed. Not the case when we write letters today. Well, here's Titus. He's receiving this letter from Paul. He must know there is some urgency. And notice how quickly the urgency falls. We're going to be looking at the next pericope or the next paragraph beginning in verse 5. Let's, let's just read verse 4 in order to catch the break. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior, this is why I left you in Crete. Okay. <laughs> okay. There you go. In one sense, just for the data, the letter could have begun there. You know, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, this is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order... And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay, boom, this is why I left you in Crete. <laughs> Here's something just interesting for us to think about. Places really do matter. Places matter a very great deal. And places do have personality. Now, Paul is going to lean into the Cretan reputation and the Cretan personality in a big way in this passage and rather quickly. Crete, by the way, is an unusual place in the ancient world 
uh, because it is a part of the ancient Greco-Roman Empire. It is a, a place influenced by both Europe and Asia Minor. Uh, what makes it, say, distinct from another island like Sicily is that Crete, for largely geographic reasons, is very highly urbanized. It's an unusual thing in the ancient world. It's a fairly, you know, it's a fairly small nation because of the, or, or location because of the island structure, but it has several large cities within it. Whereas uh, Sicily, far more rural, mountainous, just uh, different. So anyway, it's, a, it, it, it's an indication that the Apostle Paul was accompanied by Titus and probably by others given the context on a missionary journey that took him to Crete. He goes to exhort, to teach, and to encourage the believers in Crete. But as he is there, he instead confronts a massive problem in Crete. Paul does not stay to address the problem himself. He leaves Titus as his apostolic deputy. So that's really interesting. And uh, it tells us that Titus is thus chosen by Paul for this purpose. This is why I left you in Crete. Now, now certainly he must have told him that. He must have told Titus, this is why I'm leaving you. He must have given him the assignment. And so that very, that very line reminds us that this letter has a dual purpose. It's an apostolic letter to Titus, but it's not to be seen only by Titus. So when you think of Titus, there is no biblical office of like assistant apostle. He is instead the servant and the, the one who is following the apostle Paul and he is serving the apostle Paul. But still, there is only one apostle in that picture and that is Paul. And this points to something else, which is of extreme importance to us. We need not to miss this. How would Paul be present in Crete in his full apostolic authority? Ask yourself that question. How would Paul be present in Crete in his full apostolic authority? Here's something good for us to remember. It would not be in Titus. It would be in an apostolic letter addressed to Titus. That's something really important for us to know. Even this early, in the experience of the early church, it is a clearly scriptural life to which the church is being called. Now this is very good because that means we're not looking for a succession of apostles. We're also not looking for theological authority and apostolic assistance or apostolic delegates. Now, there are religious organizations in historic Christianity who followed the other pattern. And if you want to know, to know at least one distinction between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, it's exactly what we're talking about right now. The, the papacy claims, and the, in fact the magisterium of the church in general, but the papacy claims an apostolic authority. And it has apostolic delegations. And that is not just some kind of compliment. They actually believe that they are apostolic. Of course, they believe that the apostolic role continues in the magisterium of the church and in the papacy. 
I think it's just really important for us to understand that when the reformers in the 16th century confronted that question, they did not say, no, we believe that the line of apostles doesn't go and terminate in Rome. Rather, it also extends to you know, Wittenberg and Geneva. No, they said the apostolate ended with the apostles. And the apostles themselves said that the fullness would come and the fullness is scripture and there's evidence even inside the New Testament that the apostles would have a temporary and absolutely necessary role in the church. But after the apostles, we're in the age of scripture. I just think it's very interesting in this opening line of verse 5 to recognize that that's implicit because this is not merely written as a letter for, the, for Titus to roll up and put in his bag. This is a letter for Titus that has public consequences within the church, particularly in Crete. But again, all of these letters are for all of us, which is another one of the points of scriptural importance here. This is not written to Crete. It's written to Titus. Because this is not just about Crete. It is about anywhere you find, theologically speaking, Cretans, which could be anywhere, including right here. It's always a danger. Paul writes, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Okay, that sounds very interesting. Uh, this is the kind of language that we find so much in Scripture, so that you could uh, put what remains into order. What does that imply? It implies, first of all, disorder. And I think it's fair to say it implies dissipation. Now, in a long span of time, this is one of the great quandaries for all of us, just given the providence of God. One of the hardest places I've ever been in my life, theologically. I, in fact, I think I can say the hardest place I've ever been in my life, theologically, is Asia Minor, Turkey. It's very, very hard as a Christian to be in Turkey and recognize that so many of the letters of the New Testament are written to cities right here. Uh, one of the most moving places I've ever been is Ephesus. For one thing, so much of Ephesus is there. And it's not only there, it's recognizable as an ancient ruin. I mean, it's, it's so intact. By the way, footnote, I can't help cultural footnotes, Footnote, there's a reason why Ephesus looks like an ancient city. It is because the Germans glued it all back together again. So in the 19th and especially the 19th century, but also a little bit into the 20th century, uh, the Germans, who were driving a lot of the archaeology, believed that there were secrets. Not only was this part of just kind of German imperialism and German university culture is trying to understand everything, have a scientific approach to everything. But they also believed that there were secrets uh, that would be decoded by putting all these things back together again. That becomes the background to Raiders of the Lost Ark, just in case you're interested. That's uh, one of the figures in Raiders of the Lost Ark was kind of a poetic uh, bringing back to life of the particular German who headed the reconstruction of Ephesus, um, a German count, who glued everything back together, if, 
more or less, and signed his name. So you go to Ephesus, it's lousy archaeology. No archaeologist would actually do it that way. The, the, uh, the archaeologists don't glue stuff back together. They identify where every piece is and where it is, found in every stratum of the soil and all the rest, very painstaking kind of thing. So anyway, that's just archaeology. Now, one of the hardest places for me to be ever was Turkey because you think of how many of the early churches were there, the churches to whom the apostle Paul wrote these letters, and they have been gone for a millennium and a half, and in some cases, almost, well, it'll, going on to 2,000 years. But in particular, you'd say they were gone for the last 1,300 years after the Islamicization of Asia Minor. So it's a daunting thing. Theologically, that's a hard thing, just in terms of the providence of God. These are the churches that were the very central churches of the mission of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. And for more than a, well more than a thousand years, there is no church here. You're looking at a ruin. It's a warning too. But right now, Crete's kind of the center of much of uh, Paul's concern. And, and here's the concern. He is to... Um, just to look at the language itself, that you might put what remained into order. Okay, so here's something else that's, that, that's really clear. Now, there's kind of a modern analog to this, and I was reading about it last night. Uh, this part of, of Kentucky, uh, a very interesting religious experience. We don't have time to go into it all, but there's fascinating stuff. Just, just driving down these streets, because every mo Sunday morning we come to church, we are passing an awful lot of fascinating church history uh, that just goes unnoticed. But a part of what happened was uh, that there was a wave of Wesleyan revivals that came through Kentucky uh, in the early 19th century. And then uh, Campbellite uh, movement that came through at the end of the 19th century. Both of them reshaped things. But what would frustrate the Methodists is that there would be this revival, there would be an outbreak of holiness, there would be a great uh, spiritual fervor, and then they would uh, they'd come back and it's like nothing ever happened. Well, th that's one of the problems of any kind of movement. You're not sure what's real. It takes time for everything to, to settle out and you find out what's real, especially the more emotivist movements. In Crete, the language Paul uses here is that something bigger had appeared and yet what Titus is charged to do is to bring order out of what remains. It's not at all unusual. We see this. In fact, you just think about this. Think of how often the theme in the Old Testament is of the remnant, that which remains. Well, there were believers who did remain, and the church is facing difficulties, that's for sure. I left you in Crete so that you may put what remained into order. So right order turns out to be a part of the church. So much so that by the time you get to, uh, uh, say, the 20th century, when people speak of the church, they often, especially with the, the phenomenon of different denominations, they would say, what is your doctrine and what is your order? 
the World Council of Churches, ecumenical body, it's faith and order, or it would be doctrine and order. Because that's, that's where you find out who, what a church is and what a church believes. What's your faith? What's your order? So the, the church order is inescapable, and a church without order is no church. Now, a church can be disordered. That's what we as Baptists believe, okay? So Baptists, let me just remind you, we have three buckets into which we put all other churches, Okay, three buckets. One is rightly ordered church. Second is disordered church. Third is not a church. Okay, does that make sense? Is that helpful? Okay, so we can look at another denomination that, for instance, might, or another church, it might be very, very similar to us in faith and in order, in doctrine and in structure. May not call itself a Baptist church. But uh, even when it comes down to, say, the baptism of believers only and uh, regulative church discipline and things such as this, the, the same ecclesiology, congregationalism, well, remember our three buckets, rightly ordered church, disordered church, no church. Well, we would put that church in a rightly ordered church. We just say, so doesn't call your, you don't call yourself what you call us, but that's, that's good. The second category of the disordered church has two applications. One of them is there are churches who call themselves Baptists that we don't believe are. Speaking of driving through Louisville, there are churches that have Baptists in the name and we don't believe the way they actually preach and teach nor the way they, they structure the church, neither in faith nor in order are they actually Baptists. The, are they a church, by the way, at all, comes down to the question of the gospel. Is the gospel preached? Is the gospel contained in the church? If there is no gospel, there is no church at all, then you're in that third bucket. But the, the middle bucket is vast. And the, and the middle bucket includes people for whom we have tremendous respect, such as Presbyterians, uh, gospel Presbyterians. Some of our closest friends, and we believe they are preaching the gospel and teaching the scriptures in power and in strength and in, in full conviction. We also believe their churches are not horribly disordered, but, but they're disordered uh, by our understanding of ecclesiology. So in that wrongly ordered church or, or disordered church, we can say, you know, there is a range of those who would be very close to us. But then again, infant baptism for us, or what Presbyterians call infant baptism, um, that's not a small thing for us, right? We, 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 would, we would not allow into the membership of this church someone who affirmed the baptism of infants. We just wouldn't. And so that, that middle bucket of a, of a wrongly ordered, a disordered, or or uh, uh, th there's another word that's used for it. That it's, it's a little stronger, but it, no surprise, comes from the German. Uh, we'll, we'll just say wrongly ordered or disordered. Uh, but the third category where the gospel isn't preached, and you're no church at all, and, and we'd also have to say that about a lot of the churches that we pass, uh, an awful lot of the church buildings that we pass just coming to Sunday morning. The point here is that as, as Paul writes to Titus, something remains that's gospel. That's very clear. Something remains that's gospel. Paul doesn't say to Titus, 
start all over again. He says, strengthen and, and bring out of disorder the things that remain. Now, that's really kind of interesting and autobiographical for us, isn't it? And that's sort of what is the story of Third Avenue Baptist Church uh, over the last, say, 25 to 30 years. This was, uh, this was a work that was in severe decline. It had uh, fallen into disorder, indeed, even into dissipation. But it was still committed to the gospel, at least officially, even if we didn't fully understand what that means. But when folks came and joined the church and began the work of working for reform, they're doing exactly what Paul told Titus to do, strengthen the things that remain. We, we wouldn't be here. I, I, I look at this church, I think, looking at this assembly this morning, I think it's probably safe to say not one of us would be here if there had not been a significant number of Tituses who uh, came to Third Avenue Baptist Church when it was in a moment of tremendous weakness where it took some faith to see anything really that remained. And they strengthened what remained. And they put what remained into order. That was uh, a part of the, uh, that was the part of the struggle early on was putting what remained into order. Uh, Greg Gilbert worked for me as a research assistant at that time. And he wasn't pastor of the church. He was a member of the church. He was down here and he became an elder. He was involved in elders meetings. We would have lots of discussions in the office about what was going on at Third Avenue Baptist Church at that time. And uh, there were titanic meetings. I mean, he would, I'd see him in the morning and he would have been up until, you know, like one and two in the morning in an elders meeting. And they were, they were just, they were arguing over big, giant faith and order issues. And, and, and sometimes it would seem a little bit ridiculous. And one time I told him, and he's thrown this back at me. One time I told him, I said, you guys have these elders meetings at Third Avenue. And what you're trying to do is to have the Battle of the Coral Sea in a bathtub. Uh, man, the, <laughs> you put some kids in the bathtub making motion, the waves get big real fast. It's still a bathtub. Yep. Now, I wasn't depreciating the importance of it all. It was just kind of, uh, just kind of interesting because one of the big questions I had to face was how quickly do we put things in order? Okay, that's, that's a prudential question. That's a good ministry question because these younger guys who are here working for reform within Third Avenue Baptist Church, they couldn't get everything that they believed was needed and necessary on a Wednesday night. It was a long period, and I, I think that was, it required a lot of, of the Lord's wisdom to know, you know, how far do we push on this now? How far do we push on it later? But let's point out that had they not been faithful, again, we would not be here. So one of the good things from an apostolic perspective, according to Paul, is taking what remains and strengthening what remains but it's really important, I think, that it's not just strengthening it, it's, uh, it's putting what remains into order. So how do you do that? So the next phrase, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So that's another indication that the Apostle Paul here is just confirming the mission to Titus, but also uh, with apostolic authority writing so that others will read this in Crete as well as elsewhere and understand that what the... Uh, the delegate, so to speak, what Titus is doing is that the charge 
of the Apostle Paul. It's coming with Paul's apostolic authority. And you'll notice how quickly he gets to elders. So if you're going to strengthen what remains, what's the first thing the Apostle Paul says? You, and as a matter of fact, in the flow of Titus, the, the logic of it is so strong that there's really no progress to be made towards other issues of regaining health and restoring order without elders. Two things here to note. Number one, Paul says to Timothy, I told you this already, so I'm just, I'm, I'm just repeating to you what I said before. Uh, that, 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 by the way, is not just rhetoric. Uh, this, is, this is in communication a good way just of, and, and parents do this all the time, you have to, uh, you know, in a work context uh, or any kind of human context, you, you know, the, the leader has to say things like this over and over again just to define reality. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing. So when he says, I've told you this before, that's not a way of saying, you know, maybe you've forgotten. It's just a way of saying, it's just, just, for one thing, it's saying this is not true there in Crete as the answer to a problem. It's the answer to a problem in Crete because this is the way it must be in order everywhere. This is the same order that should be found in all churches. And if you're going to talk order, it's just fascinating that the first thing he says is elder. Like I told you, you have to start with elders. Now, where does this come from? One of the things we need to ask ourselves is, how can the Apostle Paul say, I wrote this to you, this is what I told you. You've got to bring order to strengthen what remains. And, and the first requirement of order is going to be elders. How can he talk about elders and we know that Timothy knows what he's talking about? Well, thankfully, we have other passages. For one thing, we have the Timothy correspondence. There's much about this in Timothy, and, and it's much parallel. Titus is shorter in one sense, but Timothy's the parallel. So that's why we put First and Second Timothy and Titus together on these things. What we have here on Paul's apostolic authority is what we now know, and this makes very clear, Titus makes this very clear, to speaking of Crete in particular, what we now know is that this is to be normative, which means constitutive of the church wherever it is found, whenever it is found. So geographically everywhere and in time for all time until Jesus comes. The church is going to be identifiable by right faith and order and that order begins with elders. It's the first thing he's talking about. Now, someone's got to appoint the elders so the church is not just elders, but where does the idea of elders come from? Well, for this, we just need to think about the words. And by the way, overseers also used in this passage. It's used less often, uh, but the, when we say elders or overseers, uh, let's work backwards for a minute. The word overseer usually has a more commercial background. Easy to understand. You know, that there are, are uh, great enterprises. It could be a farm. It could be a vineyard. It could be, you know, just about anything. But those who look over other workers are overseers. Now, the overseers are not the owners. Just think of the parables of Jesus. Comes up there too. Overseers are not the owners of the, of the vineyard or of the, or of the field. They work on behalf of the one who is the owner. Again, you can catch the theological meaning here. Uh, but they do direct the work. They have authority. They have responsibility. 
They are overseeing. So elders and overseers, it's easier to begin with overseers. It's a, it's a what the linguists call a narrower etymological band. For the word elder, it's a larger etymological range. But just think of how in the world do you talk about human civilization? So we're, let's just skip. Let's imagine we're not to Israel yet, much less the church. How, how are you going to discuss, how are you going to say, where is order? Well, even in a tribal or pre-metropolitan setting, it's, it's often spoken of with the fathers or the elders, the tribal elders. And who are they? They are the ones who are seen as leaders, sometimes because of their age. Elder implies age, no doubt about it. In the etymological background, there's age, experience. But we also know that Timothy is very young. Titus may be a little older. But we know that, that Timothy is very young, and Timothy and Titus are both so young, they're seen as analogous to being sons of the Apostle Paul. So it's not just physical age in a New Testament sense, it's spiritual age, it's spiritual maturity. But the point is, wherever you find human beings, you find the need for elders. Wherever you find any human enterprise, you find the need for elders. And it, it is just true that virtually anywhere in any successful enterprise or any healthy community or any healthy family, there are those whose authority may be structural, but it also has to be experiential. It has to be based in wisdom and an authority and a leadership that is based in wisdom, is based in competence, is based in maturity. We're going to get to those things in just a moment because one of the things we need to note is that when the Apostle Paul tells Titus this is what an elder looks like, first of all, again, Greco-Roman uh, argument style, the first thing he says, not this. We're going to see, he gives a list of not this. And then he gives a list of this uh, in terms of qualities. And uh, so we'll get to that in a minute. But the, but the point is that the Apostle Paul, in order to get the church in Crete and the churches in that area back into structure and faithfulness, to strengthen the things that remain, you have to appoint elders. Now, look at Israel. Israel had elders. We refer to them as the patriarchs. The patriarchs are so central to the history of Israel that they become basically the... Uh, the focal point of the identity of nascent, emerging Israel, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But we also know that by the time you have the, the leadership of Moses, uh, the equivalent of elders are being appointed over all the tribes. You, you, you see this just throughout the history of the Old Testament. You certainly see it also uh, in the New Testament. Uh, the disciples, by the way, uh, this is one of the early questions about elders in Christianity. The disciples were not chosen because of their experience, okay? So this is actually a point that makes the point. The disciples were not chosen for their experience, right? They're, you know, they're, they're mending nets, they're uh, collecting taxes, they're, they're doing other things. They're not chosen because of their experience. They're chosen in order to gain the experience. So in other words, by the time that we, we get to the issues the, and the events of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by his ascension, uh, the disciples come apostles, 
In fact, the difference between the disciple and the apostle in one sense is not just that they have the special status understood as given by Christ and recognized by the early church. It's also that I mean, they're now the most experienced believers that there are. Have <laughs> you thought about that? In the life and ministry of Jesus, let's just say, you know, roughly a three-year period, these, these men went from being fishermen who knew nothing to apostles who are the most knowledgeable believers within the entire orbit of Christianity. All that to say, you really wouldn't have to argue about the necessity of elders in any context in the ancient world. It just, you just wouldn't. Uh, the absence of elders would mean anarchy. The uh, absence of overseers would mean non-productivity. The absence of the father, the absence of, of, of the parents, the, 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 absent of, the absence of leadership, order, means disaster. So that's not shocking. It's not shocking this as you strengthen the things that remain and, and so you, you appoint elders. It's, uh, it's how Paul defines the eldership. Now, now notice, he says this. He'd already directed it. And appoint elders in every town. So that it would just, this, this is the assumption that in this early movement, the, the town's believers are the church. In every town, as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be, well, we're going to follow that in just a minute. But what's interesting is that really before he gets to two lists, there's kind of a general overarching concern here. And that is about being above reproach. And then the next words, the husband of one wife. Okay. Uh, above reproach is found elsewhere also in the New Testament. And, and frankly, the negative is found too, the, the reproach of the world. Or, so reproach means what we might describe as valid moral indignation. There is a, there's invalid moral indignation, right? We're, we're indignant about invalid moral indignation. There's a vicious circle for you. But there's also valid moral indignation. There is rightful judgment uh, that, that comes, moral judgment. And so the Apostle Paul says, number one, if you're going to strengthen what remains, then you're going to have to have elders. And again, there's an entire history behind that as we've considered. So you're going to need to appoint elders in every city. And the first thing he says about these elders is that they must be above reproach. Because the church of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be led by men who bring valid moral controversy with them if to say a man's name is to invoke some kind of moral wrong or reputation or argument, that man should not be an elder. And so it's just really interesting. That's where this begins. So the, the whole point also tells us that if Paul says, I left you here in Crete in order to strengthen what remains, it's written with urgency. And by the way, that urgency is going to flare hotter very quickly in this letter in Titus. The, the thing to note is that the Apostle Paul is just telling Titus, look, you've got to appoint elders in every city, but you be careful who's appointed an elder because there can be no reproach here. That, that would be devastating to the entire church. It would be devastating to the reputation of the gospel. 
You cannot appoint a man with moral reproach. Now, you can't flip that the other way and say that the, the man to serve as an elder must be morally perfect because the Bible has made that absolutely impossible for all of sin to fall short of the glory of God. That, that's not the point. But there is a difference between a man of good character, who of course is a sinner, and a man whose name invokes reproach, moral controversy, who has a bad reputation. This is, a, this is something that kind of shocks us because Paul gets here so quickly and so emphatically. But then the next line is the husband of one wife. Boom. So if you look at the Timothy correspondence, you look at the list he gives to Timothy, you, you have the same phrase. It does appear to be a bit more abrupt in Titus. The husband of one wife. I, I have been in one role of leadership now for 30 years. I've been in ministry for at least in a fifth decade, fifth decade of Christian ministry. Uh, I have seen things I can just tell you I do not know how I could imagine being in ministry, or for that matter, in life, unmarried. I don't, I don't know how a Christian leader uh, could be unmarried and effective in this way. Now, I'm not saying it has never happened. I'm not saying it's never happened. Uh, for one thing, we're talking about the Apostle Paul, but we are talking about Talking about unusual circumstances precisely because they're unusual. I will just say it is clear throughout human history, but particularly in the history of the Christian church, that a man needs a wife. And by the way, that's one of the first divine affirmations found in all of Scripture. It is not good for a man to be alone. So when people read this, they often read and say that you have one wife and not more than one wife. Well, that's clearly true, but you just need to know that unless you give yourself too much permission to think that's the main issue here. Polygamy is illegal in the Roman Empire by the time Paul writes this letter to Titus. So polygamy is not a widespread problem. And by the way, the Roman Empire did not criminalize polygamy and suppress it because of high moral standards. It did so because given the law structure of the Greco-Roman Empire, it became too difficult to know uh, basically who could inherit what and who belonged to whom and under what circumstances, you know, this, this was to be recognized as a legal right or something else. And so, again, it wasn't that the Romans decided, hey, we're going to take the moral highway here. It, it is, however, a common grace affirmation, right? In other words, we see in history where even pagans have had to say, hey, you know, that Genesis structure really, it, it kind of works. So, natural law, Moral law, husband of one wife. Now, we could talk a lot about what that means, and at least a part of what it means is that you're in a relationship that relationally, physically, uh, familially, in every way is, uh, is rightly biblically defined. Uh, I will just tell you, most men would be horrible 
without their wives. It's just true. You know, you know, you, you know us and you love us, but you only love us because we are who we are by being married to one woman. Uh, there is a structure and accountability. There's a change in the heart. There's, there's a knowledge. There is, a, there is someone uh, who knows us better often than we know ourselves. And it is so important that it's in the, the opening creation mandate. It's, it's so clear that it's the first privileged relationship of pre-political consequence in every society. It's, it's so important that uh, the Apostle Paul writes to Titus and he says, look, uh, here's what you're looking for. Someone who's above reproach and the first thing you're looking for is someone who's got the accountability and the stability and uh, the covenant picture uh, of a wife, one of them. And uh, there's something very powerful about that. And uh, again, this doesn't, this doesn't mean that there never have been and can't be single elders, but that, that, I mean, unmarried elders, but I, I found that in my experience to be extremely rare. And uh, I think every one of them probably would have been greatly strengthened uh, by being married. Now, you say, well, what about the Apostle Paul where he says, well, I wish everyone is as I am. Well, he's not speaking there of the eldership. He's speaking there about deployment for gospel service. And we, we honor those who forego the pleasure and the fulfillment of husband or wife in order to go for the cause of the gospel where you could not well go married. That, that, that probably fit the Apostle Paul in the first century. Um, and it has been characteristic of the missionary movement. Well, you know, Southern Baptists, we far prefer, and by the way, most, in fact, so far as I know, all evangelical agencies far prefer to send out married uh, couples together. But we also send out an inordinate number of single persons, but they're not being sent out as elders. They're being sent out as missionaries. And uh, for instance, uh, single women can get into many places in the Muslim world where a married couple could never get. That was also true of China in the early uh, days. This is why so many of the early missionary heroines uh, in the 19th century were women who went to places like China where they could have access as kind of helpers to other women, which uh, married women would never have the opportunity for. So that's not to say there is no role in the church for unmarried men or unmarried women. There clearly is. The Apostle Paul makes that clear. But when he's talking about restoring order and strengthening the things that remain and he talks about the centrality of elders the most important thing you can say is just you know be stable in marriage and and children who believe and this is clearly speaking of children in the household because this is this is a household code uh, but the household should reflect both in terms of the marriage and the children uh, a rightly ordered family and the idea here is that a rightly ordered marriage and a rightly ordered family gives a man who would be assigned the task as elder, uh, credibility to be a part of a rightly ordered church. But the credibility would be absent if there's a wrongly ordered marriage or, or a disordered family. And so there's a sense of good organic, that's a good word for it, organic uh, credibility and integrity here. Now, when we're together next, 
and I thought we'd get further. But when we're together next, we're going to look at the list of attributes that Paul gives for the elder. And again, very interesting. Rhetorically, he begins with the negative and then moves to the positive. And then uh, very quickly, we're going to be deep into the theological problem, uh, in particular that, uh, that Titus has to address and is the reason why Paul left him in Crete for this apostolic mission. You know, these days, in conclusion, even in many Baptist circles, there are those who cringe at the word elder. And a part of the reason is because we believe that the elder role has been actually overemphasized in some settings at the expense of congregational responsibility and involvement. Something we think is not sustained in the New Testament. And so there are churches where the elders rule in the sense that they decide everything and just announce it to the congregation and where the elders are actually self-perpetuating. Congregation doesn't even, you know, recognize and choose and appoint the elders. So here's what I want to point out. The context of Christianity is far more difficult now than it was, say, just 20 or 30 years ago here in the United States. The social pressures, the amount of social capital that is expended every single day by Christians, the threats to the integrity of the church are such now that I'll just tell you, just as an observation, I hear almost no pushback on the role of elders in our churches now. What I hear is more and more churches saying, how can we have rightful leadership in the church? How can we have the kind of elders that we need in order to guard and guide and lead the church in this generation? I see that as a recognition of necessity and also as a sign of hope. It's been a joy to look at just these few verses with you from Titus chapter 1. We'll continue and next we are together. You can't rush through Titus. There's just too much here. One of the shortest of the New Testament books. But uh, it's like the atomic chart. Some atoms are weightier and denser than others. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word. Thank you for these words by the Holy Spirit to the Apostle Paul, conveyed to Titus, through Titus to the church throughout all the ages. Father, may these words take root in our heart and bear fruit for the gospel, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.